The more the science of intelligence, both human and artificial, advances, the more it holds the potential for great benefits and dangers to society. Max Bennett is the co-founder and CEO of Alibi, an AI company based in New York City. Previously, he founded Bluecore, a company that uses AI to help some of the largest brands in the world personalize their marketing. Most recently, Bennett has published a book entitled A Brief History of Intelligence, in which he chronicles the five breakthroughs in the evolution of human intelligence and reveals what the brains of the past can tell us about the AI of tomorrow. Max Bennett, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're here to speak about your book, A Brief History of Intelligence, Evolution, AI, and the Five Breakthroughs that Made Our Brains. But before we dive in, I believe you selected a passage to read for us. Yes. Nature's Hints. When humanity wanted to understand flight, we garnered our first inspiration from birds. When George de Maistral invented Velcro, he got the idea from burdock fruits. When Benjamin Franklin sought to explore electricity, his first sparks of understanding came from lightning. Nature has, throughout the history of human innovation, long been a wondrous guide. Nature also offers us clues as to how intelligence works, the clearest locus of which is, of course, the human brain. But in this way, AI is unlike these other technological innovations. The brain has proven to be more unwieldy and harder to decipher than either wings or lightning. Scientists have been investigating how the brain works for millennia, and while we have made progress, we do not yet have satisfying answers. The problem is complexity. The human brain contains 86 billion neurons and over 100 trillion connections. Each of these connections is so minuscule, less than 30 nanometers wide, that they can barely be seen even under the most powerful of microscopes. These connections are bunched together in a tangled mess within a single cubic millimeter, the width of a single letter on a penny. There are over 1 billion connections. But the sheer number of connections is only one aspect of what makes the brain complex. Even if we map the wiring of each neuron, we would still be far from understanding how the brain works. Unlike the electrical connections in your computer, where wires all communicate using the same signal, electrons, across each of these neural connections, hundreds of different chemicals are passed, each with completely different effects. The simple fact that two neurons connect to each other tells us little about what they are communicating. And worst of all, these connections themselves are in a constant state of change, with some neurons branching out and forming new connections, while others are retracting and removing old ones. Together, this makes reverse engineering how the brain works an ungodly task. Studying the brain is both tantalizing and infuriating. One inch behind your eyes is the most awe-inspiring marvel of our universe. It houses the secrets to the nature of intelligence, to building human-like artificial intelligence, to why humans think and behave the way we do. It is right there, reconstructed millions of times per year with every newly born human. We can touch it, hold it, dissect it. We are literally made of it, and yet its secrets remain out of reach, hidden in plain sight. If we want to reverse engineer how the brain works, if we want to uncover the hidden nature of human intelligence, perhaps the human brain is not nature's best clue. While the most intuitive place to look to understand the human brain is naturally inside the human brain itself, counterintuitively, this may be the last place to look. The best place to start may be in dusty fossils deep in Earth's crust, in microscopic genes tucked away inside cells throughout the animal kingdom, and in the brains of the many other animals that populate our planet. In other words, the answer might not be in the present, but in the hidden remnants of a long time past. 
Yes, indeed. It's important to see the evolution, to understand, as you point out, that as opposed to many limited artificial intelligence systems that we're constantly learning. We want to open AI systems up to be constantly learning, but sometimes there's a training stage and then they kind of cap it. And there's all sorts of ethics dimensions that we go into. You mentioned the number of connections. And of course, there's the complex, as you write in your book, but there's also the, the chemistry involved that can completely alter our perceptions. This is perhaps one of the many things that distinguishes us from artificial or machine learning or indeed animals and their intelligences. But it's very important as you bring things back to the beginning, the observer drives the, the query, right? So who is Max Bennett and how do you define your sense of self, your perception? Where does your intelligence lie and imagination? Man, I find self-reference to be such an interesting task. I always wonder how accurate it is versus how other people see us. I think I've always been a very curious kid. I grew up with a single mom. I was in my room a lot with just toys and my thoughts. So I spent a lot of time coming up with worlds in my head and learning things on my own. And I think that sort of created an autodidactic approach to life. And I've always really loved self-learning. I'm not a neuroscientist by trade. I studied economics and mathematics and spent most of my career building technology companies. But four years ago, I became really fascinated with neuroscience for a variety of reasons. And I just started reading textbooks and papers and collaborating with scientists and then publishing a few papers that all culminated in the book. So yeah. I'd say curiosity is the driving factor in my life. Yes. And, you know, you're going really to the deep history of intelligence and the evolution of our minds, but we're forward looking, of course, because we don't know what's coming around the bend in terms of AI. And I know that you're actively involved in implementing it. But one of those core questions around AI is, can it have consciousness? So first, how do you define yourself as having consciousness? So one thing I think is often conflated in our view of consciousness is, is we think consciousness and intelligence are inherently either the same or highly correlated. And I think that's unlikely to be the case. Anyone who's practiced any sense or form of meditation realizes that often it's when we turn our minds off and we think less that we feel most aware and present. And I think that is a great introspective case study in the decoupling between conscious awareness and thinking. So I think it is highly possible that we will have very intelligent machines that far surpass us in quote unquote intelligence, its ability to to reason and problem solve, but could very easily not be sentient or conscious at all. Similarly, I think this also applies to other animals. I think folks who uh, argue that animals are not conscious or sentient due to their inability to solve a variety of intellectual tasks may also be wrong. They might be equally conscious and aware as us, even though they're not as quote unquote intelligent as us. So I very much see these as different things. And I think that has really important consequences when we think about how we treat other animals. And I think it also has a lot of important consequences when we think about building AI systems, because most people would agree that the ethical dilemmas for how we treat AI systems are really tethered to their sentience. So if you have a non-sentient intellectual AI, it's really a tool. There's no concern about any ethical dilemmas around how it's treated because it's not aware, conscious, et cetera. But you could imagine that someone might accidentally create a conscious AI that's not particularly smart, but is aware. And that would be one in 
which I think we would have to imbue moral rights because it is just as conscious as any other entity. From a point of view of intelligence, we have lots of great ideas. AI has been working on the algorithmic blueprint of intelligence and its various subroutines and aspects for at least 100 years. Neuroscientists have been trying to reverse engineer how various intellectual tasks from motor skills to reasoning to planning work in the human brain. But when it comes to consciousness, we have pretty much no idea how consciousness emerges from matter. I would say there's some hot, relatively speculative ideas, but we have no real scientific grounding on which to define this is how consciousness emerges. Yes, the people we've spoken to so far, like Nick Bostrom or Susan Schneider of The Future Mind, Anil Seth, it has not passed those tests yet. I'm of the belief that I think we should have a limbic system to have consciousness or at least to express a dilemma where we feel like uh, we couldn't unplug if it came to that. And I just interviewed Howard Gardner, who pioneered the theory of multiple intelligences. Often when we think about human intelligence, we are thinking about the, the brain or an animal, and then we have our own mind-body problem. How do you apply that distinction when you apply it to machine learning without a limbic system? So yeah, I think it's interesting to wonder, it's unclear, modern neuroscientists are questioning if there really is one consistent limbic system. But usually when we're looking at the limbic system, we're thinking about things like emotion, volition, goals. And so I would argue reinforcement learning algorithms, at least on a primitive level, already have, because the way that we get them to achieve goals, like play a game of go and win, is we give them a reward signal, and then we let them self-play and teach themselves on the basis of maximizing that reward. But that doesn't mean that they're self-aware. It doesn't mean that they're experiencing anything at all. So I think to me, I would draw the line not between the presence of objectives or goals or reward, but between is it actually experiencing something? And you could imagine something is experiencing without the presence of a reward or a goal. I think meditation is the best introspective example of this, where if one is meditating, you can be experiencing and fully aware but not be pursuing anything at all. There is no sort of goal that you're trying to achieve. And you could imagine we build an AI system in the absence of a goal, but is aware. And that AI system would be imbued with moral rights. There's also a huge, fascinating set of questions in the AI community around what's called the reward hypothesis, which is how much of intelligent behavior can be understood through the lens of just trying to optimize a reward signal. And uh, I think there's a lot of evidence in animals, at least in mammals, that the reward hypothesis is an insufficient criteria to understand our behavior. We are more than just trying to optimize reward signals. We do things to try and reinforce our own identities. We do things to try and understand ourselves. These are attributes that are hard to explain from a simple reward signal, but do make sense in other conceptions of intelligence, like Carl Friston's active inference, where we build a model of ourselves and try and reinforce that model. It's so interesting because you mentioned meditation and I link dreams to that. It's a state that we don't really entirely understand as we imagine scenarios in the absence of sensory stimulation. And I know that in AI, there's these resonances or some people call them hallucinations that could that approach dreaming or, you know, as... And Philip K. Dick called it, you know, do androids dream of electric sheep? So hallucination in language models 
primarily refer to effectively getting things wrong, which is not entirely unlike what happens in dreaming. And I'll describe the relationship between those two things. But in a language model, the reason we have hallucination is because what we do is we train these language models to predict the next word given the prior words. So when you talk to ChatGPT, all that's happening under the hood is it's read the entire internet and given the prompt you've given it, it's just trying to predict the next word. And then given the next word, it tries to predict the word afterwards. And given that word, it tries to predict the word after that. It's called an autoregressive process. So it doesn't think ahead. It doesn't plan. It doesn't pause to imagine something before answering. It just lists words. And the problem with that is you can scale it up to be a huge network with a ton of data and it gets a lot of things right, but it is not grounded in a world model. And that means that this automatic prediction of subsequent words can get things wrong. And we as humans uh, actually have a similar type of language system in our brains that tries to just predict the next word as well as an inner mental simulation of how we think. And there's actually some really cool psychology experiments that reveal the distinction between these two opposing processes. So there's something called the cognitive reflection test. And maybe you've heard this standard question in like a psychology book where they say a bat and a ball together costs a dollar and 10 and the bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? And most people immediately think that the bat costs a dollar. But if you actually paused to do the math, you'd realize, no, it's actually a dollar and five cents. And then the ball costs five cents. And the reason that's such a fascinating test is because it tricks our automatic prediction of the next word system into rendering an immediate answer without actually pausing to think about it. And so what just happened in our brains when we immediately said, oh, I think it's a dollar is exactly what's happening in these language models. It's not pausing to think, it's just rendering a prediction of the next word. So that is what we mean by hallucination. Now, the way in which that's somewhat analogous to what happens in dreaming is these are called generative models, which a language model is one. We train it to try and predict the data that we see. So the way ChatGPT is trained is it's given a paragraph from the internet and then we try and say, hey, can you predict the next word? And then we show it the actual next word and then update its weights to, to get better at doing so. And generation is just having it render and, and create new words. When we're dreaming, there's a lot of evidence that it's just our brain in a similar type of generative mode, ungrounded in sensory input. So it's just producing effectively hallucinations. And there's a lot of interesting theories as to why mammals dream and mammal brains need to dream. So mammals are unique unique in the sense that they have REM sleep. The only other species that has that is birds. And interestingly, mammals and birds are two of the only species that show evidence of planning and mental simulation. So there's some evidence that having a generative model, which people think the neocortex implements, requires a period of time to engage in a process of generation to stabilize its own representations. And this is why mammals that don't get the chance to sleep end up having disordered perceptions, et cetera. Again, that's a speculation, but it's a really interesting theory grounded in findings in AI about why we dream. Yeah, it's not just enough to have the intelligence, it's the analysis, right? And AI can <laughs> access all this information and so quickly, but having all the data at your fingertips isn't always the best results. I think in the real world situation, we very rarely have perfect knowledge like that, but we have to intuit. And AI, as you say, is often been fed through an artificial world, say if it was through the internet, not this walking around in the world and making inferences. And even as you highlight the different senses, the sense 
sense of sight and, and smell, that's complicated. How, how do you program that? So the real world situation, the real world intelligence is very different than this secondary source. Absolutely. That's actually a really profound point where there is a big debate within the AI community as to whether or not these language models will be able to become, quote unquote, artificial general intelligence or become as intelligent as a human. And one group thinks the answer is yes, which effectively is almost a philosophical assumption, which is how much of human knowledge is actually represented in text. Because if you believe the sum total of the necessary information to be an artificial human-like intelligence can be represented in the sum total of text on the internet, then you might hold that presupposition or that conclusion that you can create an AGI using just language. But if alternatively, you're in the camp that Jan LeCun is, that I would place myself in, that so much of what human level intelligence and really mammalian intelligence comes from cannot and is not represented in text. It is represented in our engagement with the actual physical world. Then no matter how intelligent you make a language model, it'll never be as intelligent or the same intelligence as a mammal because it does not engage with the world. It doesn't get the chance to see something confusing and then look around it to try and understand it before it moves on. It doesn't get the chance to touch things. It doesn't get the chance to move and see how 3D things causally relate to each other. And so this is part of why you get this weird discrepancy where we have language models like ChatGPT that can pass the bar exam and yet it can't do dishes. And it's this fascinating discrepancy where some of the things that we thought would be the most impressive feats of human intelligence, and thus the hardest to get AI systems to do, we've already solved. AI systems can do math and pass bar exams. And some of the things that are effortless to us, and we don't deem particularly intelligent, like doing dishes and walking to work, we have utterly failed to get AI systems to accomplish. And this discrepancy has been fascinating in the AI world because it's made us realize that part of what's so amazing about human brains are things that were hidden from view because they were so automatic, we didn't think of them as particularly hard. Indeed. And though that AI might be able to pass the, the bar exam, would they be able to argue to save the life of someone on death row? Could you send an AI to negotiate peace in the Middle East? These are the intuitive intelligence, these other embodied intelligences that we have and that we also share with animals. And it's interesting that you mentioned the evolutionary aspect of intelligence. But I wonder, do we need more intelligence? We're novelty seeking. And it seems like our intelligence has created so many of the problems as we think of our consumption of natural resources on the planet and climate change. It's almost like we need the intelligence to solve the problems that we created. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah, I think building AI is such an interesting technology because so many feats of human technological innovation uniquely create a sense of awe in our humanity. When we see someone land on the moon, when we see a rocket make it to space, when we solved vaccines or penicillin, these things make us proud to be a human and build something that can create awe and explore the universe or save human lives. But AI is interesting because it simultaneously creates that feeling, but also creates this fear, which I think is unique to AI versus a lot of other technologies that we built. And I think it's 
rightly so for the partly for the reasons that you're mentioning where it's not immediately obvious to us that it's going to make the world better and i think it's not immediately obvious to us that we want to live in a world where humans do no work and ai does all the work for us and we just sit around and just consume and i think a lot of technophiles in silicon valley and i've been friends with many of them imagine this utopian world where no one has to do any work and i think that is a fundamental mis- understanding of the human condition where we are primates. We evolved in social groups. We want to feel useful. We want to feel like we belong. We want to feel like we matter. And a lot of the technologies of the last two decades, social media platforms being probably the best example of this, I would argue are either neutral or negative on these very important aspects of being a human. I don't think they make people feel more belongingness or more compassion for others or more sense of usefulness. And it's odd because if someone built a technology that deprived us of water, made it harder to access water, we'd be like, that's clearly a bad technology. But we have lots of technology that deprive us of a sense of feeling like we belong and matter, social media platforms being one of them. And yet, we let these technologies exist. And so I think AI is this really interesting flashpoint for these debates because on one hand, it holds the promise to solve a lot of problems. If we really had a super intelligent AI system, could we ask it to solve climate change? Can you just please invent a carbon recapture device that's economically viable and we can just go build that? It's called trees. (laughs) (laughs) I just have to point out. Yes, exactly. No, you're right. Could we solve cancer? I have so many close people in my life that have struggled with cancer. Can we solve mental health and depression? So there's all of these challenges that are hard that we don't understand. If we had the super intelligent intelligent AI, could it do that for us? Maybe. Could it democratize access to top-notch medical information? I mean, how many stories do we all have where we have a friend that went to a doctor, it took months to get access to them, they rendered the wrong diagnosis, the wrong procedure was made, it was too late, or they suffered through being confused about what was actually wrong. If everyone had effectively free access to a Sloan Kettering doctor 24-7 through a website, how amazing would that anywhere in the world, not only in the developed rich world, but anyone could have access that doctor, how amazing would that be? So these are these like amazing promises of AI. But at the same time, what does it mean if there are no more writers? I love writing. The thought of AI doing all the writing and us humans not getting the chance to write or not being able to work because an AI can do every job better than a human. Throughout the history of economic developments, there's been lots of times people have been afraid of this and always new jobs were created. One of the most lucrative jobs today is being a software programmer, which is a job that literally was unfathomable 100 years ago. So it's possible that we'll just create new jobs. But at the same time, I think there's legitimate fear that AI is doing all the work for us is going to deprive us of something very human. And I don't have good answers to this, but this is the central dilemma of the next century of the human condition. Yeah, massive job losses. And even to the extent of certain amount of robotics and things like that, assembly line work, we were okay with that, but cognitive labor. And then I notice if we're not losing our jobs, there's now these AI assistants that are watching you, you know, oh, I see you're lagging. It's in the afternoon. If we're not losing our job, somehow we have to compete with the machine to make sure we're more machine-like. I do want to go to your breakthroughs, but there's two things that I think are important to address topically now. In the aftermath of OpenAI's firing and rehiring of its co-founder and CEO, Sam Altman, there have been these revelations about uh, what sparked the internal disruption and what do we do with a significant generative AI breakthrough. There was a prediction that we could get this 
this super intelligence, maybe within this decade or sooner. What are your thoughts on that? And what kind of proper safeguards should we have in place? So I think it is definitely a real possibility that in the next 10 years, we will have AI systems that can do a large swath of human cognitive work. I think something we're all going to realize, which I think ChatGPT is starting to reveal to us, this is not going to happen with one feature release. It's not going to be that OpenAI releases GPT-5 and now it solves every single human task better than any human. It's going to be a methodical dismantling of tasks that only humans can do, and it's going to slowly subsume those. So for example, GPT-4 can do a bunch of things as well as a human. GPT-5 is going to subsume other tasks. And eventually, over the course of perhaps a decade or two decades or three, we're going to wake up one day and realize, wow, a huge swath of tasks that used to be uniquely human can now be done by AI. But I think it's highly unlikely it's going to happen in one release. So I think the more grounded question for people to ask when we think about what is happening at OpenAI, is this Q-star algorithm that everyone is talking about going to be a meaningful step up in new sets of tasks that now these algorithms can do that previously only humans could do? And I think it definitely possible when we look at what QSTAR is doing. It's not that innovative of an underlying algorithm. People have been doing these types of search algorithms, but it's possible that by giving GPT the ability to think. So earlier, what we were talking about was the problem is this autoregressive mechanism of just predicting the next word prevents it from pausing, thinking about possibilities, evaluating the outcomes, and then choosing one. And in very simple terms, what QSTAR does is enable these language models to do exactly that. So what is going to happen if they launch this Q-star thing, if that's actually what the breakthrough was, when you ask GPT-4 a question, it's going to pause. It's going to search through possible outcomes. It's going to evaluate the results of those. And then it's going to render you an answer. And the open research question of what we won't know until they release it is how much does that improve its performance on reasoning related tasks? And the reason why they're excited is because they internally, at least it seems, got it to do basic math, which is something that GPT-4 is terrible at. GPT-4 doesn't do math very well. So that could be very fascinating. Does that mean that it's going to be human-like intelligence? No, because human intelligence has a bunch of other things also that they would not have. For example, breakthrough number four, which is what evolved in early primates, is the ability to mentalize. This is the ability to think about your own thinking and the thinking of others. And that type of model of a mind is so crucial to how we navigate our social life and, and how we understand each other. And there's no reason to believe, for example, these language models would be doing that. They also would not, if you ask QSTAR algorithms to move a robot, it's not going to be able to do that yet because it's not given embodiment. So there's still so many more things that need to happen, but that's not to say it might not be a huge breakthrough. So I think both these things can be true. It cannot be human-like artificial superintelligence, and it can also be a huge breakthrough. In terms of the whole turmoil at OpenAI, I have mixed feelings about it. You know, I have, based on people I know who know Sam well, I've heard honestly exclusively good things about him. And I've always respected the fact that he didn't actually take an economic interest in the for-profit entity of OpenAI. There's some people that theorize that secretly he is somehow getting an economic upside of it. I haven't seen evidence of that. And I think that gives him a lot of credibility, which is he did transform OpenAI from a nonprofit into this pseudo for-profit, but he didn't take any shares in the for-profit entity, which I think makes him a very credible leader of what was originally 
really the mandate of trying to make AI that's just beneficial, not solely a profit-seeking mission. Now, what's hard is in this pseudo-for-profit, nonprofit entity, when the board, whose mandate is not primarily to maximize profit, but to maximize safety, thinks that something unsafe is happening and thus makes a decision that is clearly at the detriment of a lot of economic incentives, there's a huge clash. And I hope that the fundamental choice that unfolded in bringing people back and resetting the board was not primarily driven by a profit motive. We won't know because we don't know what those conversations are. I hope it was also driven by what we think is best for the products created by OpenAI and how they'll help people. It's easy to speculate, but I don't think we'll know what the fundamental motivation was until we know more about you know what happened. Yeah. And we always hear much later <laughs> when it comes to market, yeah. we always hear things. Um, so I'm, I don't know how this affects you at your company, Albi, but as of August uh, 19th in Europe, the digital platforms are now subject to the Digital Services Act designed to get rid of non-transparent practices and take illegal content off social media, search engines, and other major websites. Then, of course, we had President Biden and his new executive just looking into these kind of things, the guardrails, new safety assessments, the equity and civil rights and things that we're talking about, like AI's impact on the labor market. So with all this governance in place, can tech companies be counted on to do the right thing for humanity? And what role can we play in designing the future we want to live in? I don't think there is a good record for companies self-regulating. I would say I am pro-capitalism in general, but I do think that if we look at the history of companies, they don't do a good job self-regulating car companies lobbied for years against the seatbelt, which is hilarious. <laughs> Tobacco companies were lobbying for years that cigarettes were not dangerous. So I think regulation is an important aspect of ensuring that economic incentives are aligned with human values. I think that's the point of our sort of hybrid capitalist socialist system that is America. And we have broadly in the, at least the Western world. So I think regulation is good. There's certain aspects of regulation that I think are really important for us to get right. So for example, one thing that concerns me is what often happens is there's a huge amount of regulatory capture when you have huge differences in understanding of a problem between the regulators and the regulated. So right now we have a bunch of regulators that have largely no understanding of how it works and what the underlying mechanisms are. And then we have a bunch of very economically incentivized regulated individuals that are now going to Congress trying to explain how the regulation should work. So that is a recipe for regulatory capture. It doesn't mean that everyone's a bad actor. I don't think that all the people from the technology world are have bad incentives. They, many of them, I think, have really good ideas. But it does mean we need to be careful because embedded in the discourse will be some individuals who are focused on their own benefit, whether consciously or subconsciously. One of the crowning achievements of humanity is self-delusion. We like to convince ourselves that the thing that's best for us is also the best for everyone else. So it doesn't mean that people are inherently being bad, but whenever someone comes and says, you should regulate thing ABC, and it just so turns out that if you do ABC, it will enrich that individual and their company, we should just be somewhat skeptical to make sure that is in fact the best way to regulate it. So in terms of the, the regulations themselves, I think a lot of them are really good ideas. I think Jan LeCun, has some of my favorite philosophies on this at Meta, where I do think we should not be regulating research. And I think we should absolutely be supporting open source. 
And I do think it's much more reasonable to regulate products. So this is a very important distinction. Regulating research is effectively telling scientists that they're not allowed to look into certain forms of AI. They're not allowed to test certain forms of it. If we do regulate research, we should have a higher burden of proof for restraining research. Maybe a good example of research that is dangerous is like gain of function research in biology. That's something that maybe we need to have safety procedures in place. I think that might apply to AI. But I do think there's way more regulations we should put on AI products. And this means that if the second you're putting something in the hand of a consumer, there's a much higher burden of proof on the builder of that AI system to adhere to a variety of safety practices. Now, open source is so important because AI is one of those interesting fields where there's huge economies of scale. So it's a great recipe for regulatory capture. What I mean by that is what we have found is in order to get these AI systems to work well, you need to give it an astronomical amount of data. That means you have to spend a ton of money to train these systems to actually be good. So OpenAI didn't actually innovate on unique research. What they did is they took established research from Google, something called the transformer model. And they said, what if we spend tens of millions of dollars of scaling that up and having it read the entire internet? That was a bet that could have not worked. And then they started talking to language model and they're like, wow, this thing got really smart. But that has economies of scale because not any startup can just go and train a 10 to $20 million model on the internet. It takes a lot of capital to do that. So the issue is if we create regulations that make it harder and harder for upstart, small companies, independent researchers, et cetera, to build anything, because there's all of these regulations that really only OpenAI, Microsoft, and Google can adhere to, what we have subtly done is effectively given the entire AI market to three players. And I think that's not really a world we want to live in either. I think we want to have enough competition such that they can't charge unfair prices, so that there's transparency, so that they are incentivized to do the right things, because if not, customers will leave and use an alternative. But my headline is, I think regulation is good. <laughs> In the introduction of his book, Bennett contextualizes human intelligence within the animal kingdom, asserting that we must not mistake our intelligence for superiority over animals that seem less complex than ourselves. He says, quote, all animals alive today have been undergoing evolution for the same amount of time, end quote, and each species has uniquely evolved to fit into their respective ecological niche. While I agree that examining our intelligence should not lend itself to indulge our hubris, it is still interesting to question what makes our experience as humans unique, to grapple with why we are the way that we are, how we came to create our ecological niche, and why we seem dead set on destroying it. On this topic, Bennett offers some compelling insights. Firstly, Bennett speaks of AI's ability to respond to a reward system, a basic circuit in which neuronal connections, be it a human brain, fish brain, or AI system, are strengthened based on the achievements of a reward or goal. Take, for example, teaching a dog to sit. The owner commands sit, and when the dog sits, it receives a treat. This reward process is repeated until it becomes automatic, ingrained in the dog's brain. AI can do this too. So clearly, a reward circuit is not a defining aspect of the human experience. Functioning within a reward system does not require awareness. Bennett asserts that our identity as humans may be instead grounded in neural pathways that exist without reward optimization. He gives the example of meditation. You experience existence in the absence of a pursuit of anything at all. Bennett continues to turn our conception of intelligence on its head by providing examples of AI achievements and roadblocks. He says, for example, 
AI can pass the bar exam with flying colors, but it cannot clean dishes. This discrepancy suggests that human intelligence may be innately tied to processes we deem as automatic. Our humanity may lie in our physical embodiment. After our conversation, I found myself with more questions about our humanity than answers. So naturally, I turned to ChatGBT. When asked to define the human experience, ChatGBT said the following, The human experience encompasses the collective and individual journey of human beings through life. It is a multifaceted and dynamic tapestry of thoughts, emotions, sensations, and interactions that shape our existence. This includes the pursuit of knowledge, the quest for meaning, the complexities of relationships, the spectrum of emotions from joy to sorrow, and the continuous process of self-discovery. And now, back to the interview. I'm curious about what you were saying earlier about AI intelligence being able to encapsulate the human condition. So I was curious about a process like art or take, for example, poetry and writing a haiku. A haiku has a particular set of rules, three lines, five syllables, seven, then five again. It usually contains a lot of imagery and a narrative arc, however minute within the poem. And ChatGBT can create a haiku that follows these rules. Would you consider that haiku, therefore, a true haiku? and therefore can AI produce art and by extension encapsulate the human experience? So I think a little bit's in the semantics of what we deem art. And I would say I prefer to be less personally snobby in the definition of this is art, not art. I'd say it can be art if it looks like art to someone. And so I think it's reasonable to say that haiku written by ChatGPT can be art. But that doesn't mean that a lot of people will deem it to be good art. When I read or experience certain forms of art, if I read some speculative fiction, it really moves me, for example. Part of the reason it moves me is because it came from a human mind who experienced something they were trying to share with a fellow human mind. And it moves me because I can tell in the writing that another human felt something and wanted to share what they experienced, the pain they felt or the joy they felt or the story they built in their heads. And what I think is interesting about the stories created by ChatGPT is none of them have really been good yet. It can write novels, but no one's buying those novels. And so it begs an interesting question. Do you need to feel and to suffer a little bit and to get the trials and triumphs of the human experience to write or to create art that is compelling and meaningful to a fellow human? And I think that's an open question, but I don't think it's a coincidence that ChatGPT can do a lot of intellectual tasks well and has not yet created at least story art that has moved people. The visual arts are an interesting example here where these stable diffusion models can create really striking visual imagery um, that I do think some people would deem at least aesthetically very amazing. But what's funny about even those is when I look at some of the art created by stable diffusion, maybe this is just by nature of how humans think, but I can't help but think about the human that made the prompt and chose that picture. In which case, there's still a human that was involved in the creation of it. And, and even ever so slightly, it imbues it with some meaning for me. So maybe this is a stretch of an analogy, but the same way that a human using a canvas and a paintbrush is using tools, right? But what matters to me is not that there was a canvas and a paintbrush, but that there was a human that held the paintbrush. And so I think there's an aspect of that still operating in the art created by AI. Indeed, much like a director who may never say the lines, wear the costumes, but still there's a, an imaginative intelligence there. Yeah, for me, art is an exchange between human experiences. There's a projection from the artist of their experience, and then you project your own experience onto whatever piece of art you're looking at. So that's an interesting question. In reading your book a little bit, in the chapter, The Problem with 
pattern recognition, you talked about a misconception about AI that it's continually learning. And you assert that actually AI machines learn all at once and then become frozen and stop learning. So I was wondering if you could explain why that is and also specifically the so-called problem of catastrophic forgetting. So this is such a fascinating hole in AI right now. There are some researchers starting to work on this because I think it's one of the most important things we can try and take from biology and gifts to AI. So right now, when you talk to ChatGPT, one will notice if they create a new thread and they say, hi, it will have no memory of the prior threads. And that's because the neural network, this huge web of a trillion different connections is not being updated at all ever while you're talking to it. All that's happening is it's passing the text you send and then it's predicting the next word, but it is not updating the weights. So the network is always the same. And every once in a while, they update the system. And so you'll see at the bottom of ChatGPT, you'll say the December 15th version, for example. That's the last time they updated the weights and then they released it. And the reason for this is because we have not figured out something that exists in animal brains as far back as the first vertebrates, even fish have this, which is how can you allow a intelligent system to get a constant stream of information, continually learn from that information without disrupting the information it already has learned. And this is something that still exists in, in neural networks. So for example, the best case study here was one of the first discovered a few decades ago. If you train a neural network to do basic addition, so you say, learn what one plus one is, one plus two is, one plus three is, et cetera. And once it learns that well, then you train it to add twos, two plus two, two plus three, two plus four, et cetera. By the time you do all of this, if you go back and ask it ones, it's forgotten it entirely. The reason is because when you teach it new things, information in neural network is distributed around all the neurons. It's not like a computer where information is in this region and then other information in other regions, distributed over the entire network. And so when it learns new information, it overwrites the old information. So the way we solve this problem is training data is given to the neural network all at once or in these huge batches multiple times. And we're measuring its performance against how well it predicts things, its loss function. As a human, we're monitoring its performance until it gets good and then we don't let it learn anymore. And then we evaluate it across a bunch of benchmarks until we feel like it's safe, we release it into the world. If we want to retrain it, we do that largely from scratch again. And this is because we don't trust that if we let it just learn on the fly, it's not going to start going off the rails and forgetting information that already had. And even a fish brain does this. So even a fish can be shown how to escape from a maze. And then a whole year can go by where it's learned new things for 365 days, never seeing the maze. You put it back in the maze and in one shot, it immediately remembers what happened in the past. And we do not understand how brains so stably learn things and can continuously learn new things without overriding old memories. It's an amazing feat of vertebrate intelligence. We have some ideas about how the brain might be doing it, but it's largely a mystery. And it's a really fascinating open challenge where if we think about the AI systems that we want to create, we want to be able to sit down with them, have an AI friend or a robot around the house, and we want them to learn as they're experiencing the world. And currently AI systems don't do that. Honestly, I, I find it a little bit comforting knowing that that's a problem that AI is facing. <laughs> it feels like maybe that's another step between them and us can work to minimize the fear around AI taking over the human experience. Yeah. Funny. It's like, I wish AI didn't, I feel the same way, but I think the comfort 
is there's going to be lots of limitations, but I do think we need to reckon with a world where these will be overcome. The economic incentives to overcome these problems is just so strong that within our lifetimes, people are going to figure this out. And we need to imagine a world that we like, and then we need to fight for that world. You were talking earlier about regulations that should be in place around AI and the creation of AI, but how do you go about framing AI to the public as something to not be afraid of, as maybe a tool? to enhance our experience rather than detract from it. The nice thing is this is honestly where technology leaders need to do a good job pitching a future that society likes. Because in the absence of that, this is how it's going to unfold. We're going to regulate it out of existence. If the fundamental initial use cases of AI are just wholesale replacing jobs and people do not experience the positives that we get from this new technology, then it's just going to be regulated. People will be too angry. So something to have solace in is there actually is strong incentives for people to pitch a good future with AI because otherwise their technologists are going to lose their technology. So I think what we need to really hone in on, and I do think Sam Altman and those folks are doing a good job thinking about this, or at least there's a lot of folks in that organization that are thinking about this. We need to find use cases that inspire us, that do genuinely improve our lives. So I think medical applications are an amazing one. Can we democratize access to cheap, intelligent medical care around the world? That would be an incredible step forward. Mental health applications. There's a loneliness epidemic. Can we use some of these AI systems to help people have 24-7 access to the top-notch therapists to help them reason through, go through cognitive behavioral therapy, all of these really science-proven mechanisms for therapy? Can we give people 24-7 access to these types of things in a safe way? There's so many great use cases. So it behooves leaders in this AI world to pitch a good future and really focus on building those things. Because in the absence of that, if all we're doing is we're making 40% more productive by reducing staff and increasing the profitability of companies, it's not a very inspiring world. So there's not one silver bullet to it, but the best thing we can do is really hone in on applications that inspire people and are very easily understandable as improving the human condition. Definitely. And putting some of the computational benefits, uh, climate change or resource management with a growing population. You know, in all of this writing about human intelligence, you're also reflecting on some of the great minds, how they make their breakthroughs. One other thing that we're considering now is the possibility of neural wetware. What are your reflections on the great minds and, and whether it would be possible to achieve that through neural wetware? Yeah, neural wetware is such a fascinating nascent field. Jeffrey Hinton, who's one of the sort of quote unquote godfathers of AI and one of the pioneers of backpropagation that undergirded the AI revolution, he had an interesting thought, which is it's possible that one of the only solutions to AI safety is instantiating it in something analog like neural wetware. And the reason for that is the dangerous thing about digital intelligence is it's infinitely copyable and expandable. And this is actually similar to the risk with viruses. It only requires one virus of a horrible pathogen to get out of a lab for it to spread across the entire world. So that's why we have a lot of safety rules around viruses, because just one mistake can be so dangerous. Why? Because it's infinitely copyable. And so this is the same thing with digital intelligences, which is all it has to do is get on the internet and then we'll never be able to to track it down. But analog intelligence is not like that. So if we instantiated these super intelligent AI systems into wetware, it wouldn't be e able to download itself and travel elsewhere because it would be like us instantiated in something analog. So there actually is some interesting ideas around AI safety and wetware. Other than that, I do think there's a, a very real possibility that 
we will find that to have super intelligent systems that are energy efficient, we need wetware. The difference in the energy cost of running ChatGPT versus a human brain is astronomical. A human brain runs on the amount of energy of about a light bulb or two, which is a crazy thing to realize how energy efficient the thing in our head is that creates all of the amazing intelligence we have, all of the common sense, sentience itself. And ChatGPT, which captures only a small fraction of that, is consuming way more energy. And so mostly we're ignoring the energy efficiency concerns, but you can imagine a world where AI becomes so ubiquitous that we're consuming so much energy just to run these AI systems that the core focus stops being how do we get them smarter, but how do we get them more efficient so they're not consuming so many of the world's resources. And I think wetware will be one possible really great research direction on superior energy efficiency. In terms of the great minds, I've been really humbled and inspired to collaborate and meet some of these people on the writing of the book and hear their stories on how they came to their eureka moments. There's a very interesting balance of different attributes that folks who do some of these great scientific things have. There's an insatiable curiosity they all have. There's a grit where things are hard and they're not willing to give up. There's a willingness to pitch their ideas. No scientific idea is discovered in a vacuum. They all have to go out and explain the idea to people so other people understand it and then adopt it. They're all very smart at the meta decision, at deciding what's important to work on in the first place. I think that's probably the most important thing I see a lot of these great scientists having done, which is they don't start from, I'm just going to work on what my thesis advisor says. But there's a really good process as to what is an important, promising thing to work on. And they spend a disproportionate amount of time reasoning about that. And then they go and try and solve that problem. And I think that does make a really big difference. Yeah, the prioritizing. That's the thing that I haven't seen yet with these different queries that I've put into my systems. I don't know if they're those that are doing things in the absence of a prompt, like exploring for no reason. And as I reflect on intelligence, for me coming from a background in the arts, I always feel it's linked to creativity. That's my sense of intelligence. If something wasn't there before or not, not similar enough, then to me, that's intelligence rather than some kind of like compiling without any kind of new addition to the world. Yeah, I think there are some really interesting things to explore there, which is how do we measure novelty in creativity? A lot of what creativity is recompiling other things that inspired us, but it's not plagiarism because what we create is new. But I think most artists would say they're inspired by prior work and it informs their work. And so I do think it is hard to clearly articulate what is different about that exercise from ChatGPT or stable diffusion models that do create what we can show is definitively novel art or written word, and we know it is inspired by its training data. So what makes it not novel and creative versus the human version of it? To me, the only distinction I can draw is what we started earlier with is when humans do it, there is a message imbued in the art because I am experiencing something as a feeling thinking human, and I am channeling that into the thing that I'm creating as a little message gift and human solidarity to others who might experience it themselves. And I think that is something missing from AI that does that. And I think it might not be that they're not quote unquote creative, 
but that the creativeness is almost vacuous because it lacks that message from another thinking sentient being that's trying to communicate with us. And that's why when we look at it, something feels missing that's hard to articulate. Indeed, most creative works contain some element of biography and a reason for being definitely. And I don't know, would AI be able to defend its reason for being other than like, it's what you said you wanted me to do. Right, <laughs> kind of right like totally. A robot, you know, don't you know? You know, you asked me. But no, it's, it is interesting to know. I think that there's been some questions about as we look into the future, whether some great minds or great artists of the past can be recreated and who owns that data as well. Data is a whole nother subject and, and, and whether we're allowed to plagiarize and bring into the future. But it is fascinating to be in conversation with them in, in whatever way. And just in closing, I think you address some of the issues about the, the environment and whether the new technologies, AI can help with that. But what are your reflections on the importance of the environmental humanities and telling stories about our planet? We are on a speck of dust in the middle of nothingness that is the only haven we are privy to that can support life and intelligence. So I do think it behooves us to treat this speck of dust as well as possible. I forget who came up with this analogy, but I love it, which is if we think about Earth, not as a planet, but a spaceship, and it's our spaceship, and we're tunneling through the void with this spaceship, wouldn't we care a lot about the state of this spaceship? Would we let it start rusting in places and things start breaking down? Would we let it run out of fuel? Would we let key parts of the spaceship's functioning just cease to be working with the hope that, oh, we'll just fix it sometime in the future, generations in the future, we'll fix that part of the spaceship. When we think about it that way, we would treat our spaceship very well. And so I think it's absolutely crucial. Whether you are in the camp, I think there's two general camps today. There's the camp of what might be called the technophiles that are fascinated with accelerating technology and expanding human consciousness into machines and seeing how far into the universe we can spread and going on these grand adventures. And there are those that think what's beautiful about the human condition doesn't require expansion. It doesn't require more. We already have everything that is beautiful about sentience. We should preserve it and share it with other animals and maintain some form of symbiosis and and balance. No matter which of these two sides of the spectrum you fall on, it is absolutely essential that we keep Earth healthy. And it's absolutely essential that we let Earth stay in environmental and ecological balance so that in the first camp, we don't risk ending the grand 4 billion year experiment on Earth where consciousness disappears and we don't get to spread into the universe. In the latter camp, of course, the beautiful balance that is Earth gets disrupted. So I think it's one of the most important things we can do, which is making sure that we keep Earth healthy. And you've spoken about what moves you in the arts and the importance of these stories. And you're a writer. And so even as we expand these technologies, what for you is the importance of maybe having the humanities as part of that design process, you know, the humanities involved in the formation or the governance? Technology and engineering and all of these things can tell us how to do things and how to achieve an outcome. They do not give us a why. They do not tell us to what end are we achieving. And especially now as AI technology and other forms of technology are accelerating at almost a scary pace, it behooves us to be very clear as to why we're doing what we're doing and what is the future that we're trying to achieve. And that is fundamentally a question that is only answered in the humanities. That is a philosophical question. That is a moral question. That is a political question. And I think folks who only 
focus on the interesting, curious, intellectual challenges of the engineering of technology are at risk of creating a world we don't in fact like because we're not thinking about why we're doing what we're doing or what the goal is. And so I think many forms of the humanities help us understand why. I'm personally a big fan of speculative fiction. I, th I think science fiction really helps shed light on the consequences of various things and helps us explore futures. I think that's one wonderful form of us reasoning about why we may or may not want something. Political theory and philosophy are incredible sources of reasoning about the consequences of various choices, what helping us challenge our own intuitions of what are right and wrong. I think art helps us get in touch with the intuitive sense of human solidarity. When we look at art created by someone who is going through something painful or scary or special, and we can connect with them, I think that helps us share our common humanity. So I think the humanities are an essential part of any future because it helps us define why we're doing and what's the end goal that we're trying to achieve. Well, Max Bennett, thank you for helping us understand the how and the why of intelligence, evolution, AI, our brains. For only by understanding ourselves can we ever create true artificial intelligence. Thank you for helping us understand what we value and where we're going. We can create positive futures. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thanks for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Callie Cho with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Callie Cho. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Adalis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.